You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. By the end of January, just over half of Canadian kids aged 5 to 11 had received their first dose of the COVID vaccine during the two months since its approval. That number is creeping up slowly, but it's still nowhere near the 72% of kids aged 12 to 17 who got theirs in the first two months. It's fair to ask what the difference is between those groups. To a certain extent, parents are warier of vaccinating younger children, no matter how safe it may be. As well, this is an age group that generally handles COVID well. So the individual decisions made by parents might outweigh those made for the greater good. But if you want to try and wrap your head around the outlook that leads to parents making that choice, it's more important to ask where the difference is rather than what. One reporter did just that recently in Canada's largest city. The results paint an interesting picture. If you want to know which kids are likely to be unvaccinated, there's a decent way to tell. They're the ones attending alternative schools. Even before COVID, with vaccines that had been proven safe over decades, the opt-out rate among alternative school kids was many, many times higher than kids in traditional classrooms. So why is that? Where does that vaccine hesitancy come from? And what can we learn about the factors parents weigh when they make those decisions by studying the philosophies of the schools chosen by parents who don't vaccinate their kids? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Inori Roy is a freelance investigative journalist based in Toronto, her work has appeared in the Toronto Star, the Narwhal, and for this project, in The Local. Hey, Anori. Hi, Jordan. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. For the purposes of this conversation, why don't we just start by having you define or describe what we mean when we talk about alternative schools? What are they? Yeah, so alternative schools, um, and for the purposes of this story, um, are schools within the Toronto District Public School, so uh, board, sorry, so they are publicly funded, um, but they provide alternatives to mainstream education. So they're usually much smaller in terms of class sizes and in terms of size of the school overall, um, and they usually have particular themes related to them. So because they're providing alternatives to the mainstream, uh, they'll instead have themes like uh, being based on outdoor education or community involvement the arts, social justice, or particular styles of teaching, like the Waldorf-inspired schools. Um, one thing I wanted to note that was quite interesting that came up in the research for this piece is that amongst the elementary schools, um, the alternative elementary schools in Toronto, there is a sense of um, them being more elite uh, amongst researchers and mm -hmm. uh, a sense that parents sort of strive to, to put their kids in those schools and then in the secondary system, send them off to private schools, but alternative secondary schools are not considered particularly elite. Um, instead, they're usually uh, for kids who aren't really thriving in the mainstream uh, secondary school system. So there's quite a difference between who is seen as attending elementary alternative schools and secondary alternative schools. That's really interesting. How many of these schools exist uh, in the TDSB? They're around 40. Okay. So a substantial number, and, and these uh, they're attended by a smaller number of children. And, and I know this, I mean, because uh, you'll probably hear me mention that uh, my own mother ran an alternative school for 25 years. It was a grade 7, 8, so middle school, but very much mm -hmm. that, um, you know, parents really trying to get in application process, um, et cetera, et cetera, what you'd, 
what you'd consider, um, I guess, an elite atmosphere, even though the kids were from all walks of life? Exactly. That's right. They are open to the public um, and anyone can apply. But there has been a question amongst, um, you know, people who are trying to advocate for for more equitable alternative school systems um, that depending on, on, on where you are in the city, sometimes you end up with, you know, communities in the schools that aren't particularly diverse, that are from the same sort of economic, like upper middle class or upper class backgrounds. Um, and so while they are available to everyone, there is a sense of exclusivity to them. And what fascinates me about your work on this story is we're going to talk about vaccination rates in these schools in pre-COVID times. Mm -hmm. So this is not actually talking about the COVID vaccine. So give us an idea of what those rates are, how many people opt out, and, and then in a second we can talk about what opting out actually means. Yeah, sure. So um, the exemption rates for alternative schools um, for alternative elementary schools, it's about 13% exemption rate. For um, high schools, it's 4%. So you'll see that's that's quite a bit lower. Um, so overall, it's around an 8% exemption rate from uh, mandatory vaccines. So for the data that's provided by the city, uh, that is calculated mainly for uh, the DPT vaccine and for MMR, so uh, measles, mumps, rubella. And so Overall, you'll see like a nearly five times higher um, than non-alternative vaccination rates um, because non-alternative vaccination rates are around 1.8%. So it's a pretty stark difference, especially at the elementary level. What exactly is the exemption that we're talking about here and what does it entail? How do you get it? Yeah, so this is a non-medical exemption. Um, so medical exemptions, the process is sort of uh, standard and across the board, and it involves you know having your doctor um, sort of give you a note for it. Um, non-medical exemptions are conscientious, philosophical, or religious exemptions. They go by a few different names. Um, and the process is uh, that anyone can apply for a non-medical exemption. Um, it involves filling out a form, um, and then the parents have to go to an education session. Uh, they have to watch a 30-minute standard video that is uh, provided uh, publicly and is available to anyone who would like to access it. Um, and then once you've uh, sort of done that education session, watch that video, you just sort of fill out the, the necessary paperwork, and then you're given your exemption. This is probably a question that's going to sound controversial. I don't mean to try to stir anything up either way. But uh, if these vaccines are quote unquote mandatory and these exemptions are not for medical reasons, uh, why does the board allow it? <laughs> um, I think there are a lot of complex legal factors behind it that for someone who's not a legal expert probably wouldn't be able to get into the details of. But I know that there is a sense that um, the non-medical exemptions are sort of fundamental to like the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. That's one of mm -hmm. the, the ideas that has been put forward by uh, researchers who, who've involved themselves in, in understanding the history of non-medical exemptions. Um, there's also, you know, as I mentioned in the article, there is a sort of complex history of parents advocating for it. And so there's a sense that at this point, it feels a little unavoidable. Um, and I think that there is a legal precedent, certainly. Um, and it would be quite difficult to challenge that. Fair enough. That's why I asked. <laughs> when you speak to teachers and workers at these alternative schools, or even just um, people in the board who, who look at both alternative schools and non-alternative schools, what do they say the reasons are for that stark difference in terms of exemptions? Well, there's a it's interesting because there's a spectrum of hesitancy, right? So right. there's there's sort of a small extreme minority who 
straight up just won't believe in biomedical science, right? They'll say that, you know, Western medicine doesn't have our best interests at heart. It's not how we go with our kids. Like it's not the route we choose to take. And so instead we're going to focus on different forms of medicine. So homeopathic medicine or other forms of medicine that aren't super common. Um, But that spectrum, you know, sort of can move from that extreme to a more general distrust, for example, in pharmaceutical companies. Um, And, you know, it's interesting because in a lot of ways, these are the two halves of um, parents who are really uh, engaged with the question of like community and social justice. I find that um, on the one hand, when you think about social justice, you have to think about, you know, common good and and making decisions that help the common good include getting vaccine. Um, but on the other hand, parents who are very engaged with with social issues also understand that, you know, there is a reason to potentially distrust uh, major pharmaceutical companies who have had a history of of doing things that that can harm potentially marginalized people. And so uh, there is a sense that, you know, amongst a a middle um, group of of those parents, there is that distrust in pharmaceutical companies. And then on the other end, there's parents who sort of have a a pretty common um, perspective, which is that they've just not seen enough of an effect uh, of the vaccine. Like they haven't seen it, you know, roll out over enough time to be able to tell what the long-term impacts are. Um, And so they will wait until they've seen that impact to be able to make their decision. So across all of these these different factors, one of the common things that you see is there is a belief that their knowledge networks and their ability to do their own research and um, gain their own understanding of the situation is equal to that of science. And so, you know, with all due respect, um, of course, the the ability of a person who is not a scientist, who is not involved in, you know, peer-reviewed uh, scientific research and, you know, the sort of massively funded, globally initiated research that's happened into these vaccines, obviously that's not going to be able to, you know, mirror an individual parent or a group of parents uh, in, a, in a small city who, who don't have their own sort of resources on the subject. And so, You'll find that despite those differences, despite that imbalance in like scientific experts certainly being able to speak uh, for the vaccine and and parents doing their own research not being able to, those parents will think their research is is equal and is up to par. Okay, well, we'll give that to them for now. In terms of the schools themselves, this is something else that I found interesting. Is there anything that some of them have in common that lends itself to the approach that you just mentioned. For instance, I think right when we started, you mentioned the Waldorf learning philosophy. What is that and and how might it play into what we're talking about here? Yeah. So the the Waldorf learning philosophy is um the thing that's that's quite tricky about it is that there is no body that like speaks for Waldorf across the world. Um, okay. There are Waldorf schools um, all over the planet, and um, they all sort of have their different approaches that are informed by a few overarching factors that that remain common. And so those factors are that Waldorf learning um, believes that the the mainstream and traditional approaches to teaching aren't working for kids. Um, specifically, you know that they're too prescriptive, and that the the sort of benchmarks and standards that they set up for children don't really match the children's sort of natural and intuitive abilities. And so so Waldorf learning combines some amount of academic learning with also a lot of sort of hands-on activities and um, emotional learning, things of that nature. So they have a, a sort of motto of like heart, head and hands. Um, and so there's a lot of doing involved in, in Waldorf learning. And there's a sort of emphasis on the arts, on being in nature um, and on setting up different academic benchmarks, um, perhaps ones that are a little less strenuous than what they perceive the mainstream system to be. 
I think so far when we've talked about uh, alternative schools, especially in in the Waldorf style, we're talking about those schools that we mentioned at the beginning that are predominantly elementary and are kind of seen as elite. But what about other schools that serve different communities? What are they like? And and I guess what's the same and what's different about um, their philosophies towards vaccines? And I guess I'm speaking about the parents, but the schools as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the schools that we we spotlighted in this story that I think really illustrates that is the Afrocentric school. Um, so that is an environment where the learning is is geared towards understanding uh, Black history, uh, Black realities, and you know there's a sort of uh, a, an approach that really focuses in on that Afrocentric um, thinking. And so the the difference between a school like that and a school like Da Vinci, which is a Waldorf inspired school, is that um, at the Afrocentric school, you know, there is a recognition of the the history and the harm that the medical community has caused to Black people over time, and so. Mm-hmm. Of course, that goes back to, you know, periods of enslavement um, and even, you know, sort of over the last century. Um, and so there's a different hesitation towards vaccines. The the hesitation amongst da Vinci parents is very much one of, well, I don't necessarily trust the system because the medical, um, you know, the medical beliefs that I have don't align with with Western medicine necessarily, or I have a distrust of, of pharmaceutical companies versus um, for Afrocentric school parents, some of them, of course, not all, it's not a monolith, uh, but some of them have a sense of, well, you know, there's been a history of trauma um, in, in the Black community with regards to how they've been treated by the medical community. Right. Um, and there's a sense that, you know, we'll make our own decisions um, as we sort of speak with healthcare providers who we know we can trust, who we know have our best interests at heart, because we don't feel that the system overall has our best interests at heart because they haven't in the past. And so there is a sort of, there's a a marginalization and a historical trauma in a school like the Afrocentric school that doesn't exist at Da Vinci. And so that is a really important distinction. And that makes, you know, that is the distinction that sets apart um, the conversations that are being had at a, at a school like the Afrocentric school. Um, but again, it's not sort of across the board, um, just because parents at that school sort of have an interest in their children learning like uh, in an Afrocentric manner. That doesn't necessarily mean they're all having the same conversations about the vaccine. As I mentioned right at the beginning, the data we're looking at for this uh, predates COVID. So we're not talking about the COVID vaccine here. As you mentioned, we're talking about MMR uh, and other ones. My question, though, is about how this plays into the pandemic and in either kind of alternative school or just in alternative schools as a whole. Has that distrustful attitude towards uh, science and the medical community, wherever it comes from, translated into Uh, suspicion of other scientific approaches to the pandemic. So, you know, mask wearing, cohorting, um, even believing that COVID is real, which I also know can be a problem. Um, Yeah. So as we we covered uh, in the story, a particular instance that happened um, at Da Vinci. So Da Vinci um, shares uh, the school building uh, with with Lord Lansdowne, which is another public school. And so there are, you know, there's the mainstream school and the alternative school inside the same building. That is the case with most alternative schools. Mm-hmm. And so one of the incidents that we speak about in the story is that, um, you know, there was an altercation between a Lord Lansdowne parent and a Da Vinci parent who were both picking up their kids from the daycare on 
on-site um, because the Lord Lansdowne parent asked the Da Vinci parent to put on their mask and the Da Vinci parent sort of um, became very agitated um, and, you know, said that mask wearing isn't necessary because COVID isn't real. It's, you know, it's just the regular flu. Like the, everyone's making a big deal for no reason. There's no, there's no reason for um, mask wearing at all. And so that was one of the altercations that really sort of illustrated to the uh, teachers and, and parents on site that, um, that there was a problem here. Um, and so that is, you know, it's, it's a reality amongst a minority. I'm not going to say it's uh, that all sort of alternative school parents are, are anti-mask. That's not the case at all. Right. It is a sort of extreme minority who, who fall in, in the realm of, you know, not believing that, um, that that science can really be trusted in terms of in terms of its uh, assessment of the pandemic, um, and so what you'll see more often is amongst these parents a sense that the things that my child is going through to make space for the pandemic and to take precautions against it aren't worth the psychological trauma, um, and so. You know, the person, the the parents and teachers that we spoke to uh, anonymously for this story, some of them noted that one of the key things was that parents kept believing that, like, if their if their children saw people wearing masks all the time, that there would be a sense of trauma, you know, that that children mm. can't really understand or emotionally process the, the world, you know, being masked up. And so that was a reason to avoid masks. Um, and to, you know, to not impose that on children, um, which is, you know, something that particular, in particular, like some teachers disagreed with. They, they felt that, you know, they had seen the students adapt really well inside the classroom when their parents weren't around and they were wearing masks. And so, you know, there's a question as to whether those parents are being fair in their assessment of what their kids are, are experiencing or whether there's an overall sense of needing to protect children from something that is in fact helping them. And so that's one of the ways in which like that sense of skepticism that like scientists maybe are being too precautious or going too, uh, too far. Um, that is, is sort of impacting the way that the children, uh, the parents want their children to, to interact with the world around them. I will just say, because it sounds like I'm being skeptical towards these folks for this entire interview that I have a lot of empathy for uh, every parent that worries about this stuff uh, and the long-term damage it's doing to kids. So I, I totally understand where that questioning nature comes from. What I want to know is what kinds of conversations are happening between teachers and parents, between parents and parents around the uptake on COVID vaccines, which I am assuming, uh, because it is the trend in the general public, will be much less even than the uptake uh, for, say, the MMR vaccine. Yeah. Um, so first of all, like definitely it's important to have empathy for parents in these situations because without that, there's also no way to get through to them. Like there right. has to be sort of one of the first things that um, is important in terms of communicating with these parents is, is, is the sense of, you know, their fears are understandable. Everyone's really worried about the impact that this is going to have on children. And so I have I, I don't, I'm not a parent myself, but I have a lot of um, empathy for for what these parents are going through and the things they might be aware of and worrying about on a constant basis. And in terms of the uh, conversations that are happening um, in the schools between parents and teachers, between parents and parents, uh, one of the things that is uh, that has proven really interesting is that 
amongst the the parents who are more extreme and the parents who are more are very skeptical of of the medical system and and the scientific system um they will direct some of their their requests around you know not being as harsh with the masks or in terms of you know not feeling that that this is the right time to get vaccinated they will direct that towards the teachers because um they feel that you know it's part of the teacher's responsibility to um, you know, hear where parents are coming from and, and it's part of the administration's responsibility. Mm-hmm. And so that dialogue doesn't really work two ways. Like I have found with the teachers I spoke to that there isn't that much of a uh, return dialogue between teachers and, and parents where teachers are trying to convince parents that the vaccine is is a, a viable solution. That's not really happening. Those conversations largely take place uh, between parents and between parents and uh, like public health authorities. Um, and so, you know, one of the ways in which that functions is that amongst parents, there is a potential risk of misinformation because a set of parents will will do their own research and come to specific conclusions. One of the ways that one of the researchers put it is that the parents often end up becoming fixated on the limitations of a study. So they, they will, you know, engage with medical research. They will engage with, with scientific research that has been published and peer-reviewed. But when it comes to, you know, the, the part of a scientific study where they have, you know, the, these are the limitations of this study and, and sort of use it to define their entire understanding of the piece of research, um, even if, you know, they're sort of disproportionately focusing on the limitations. And so what ends up being the case is that sometimes misinformation uh, based on those limitations can travel from parent to parent um, and, you know, spread through those means. Um, but equally, right. uh, you know, parents are able to, you know, listen to public health authorities or even, you know, if there is a medical professional or a scientist in their midst, like, for example, one of the parents we spoke to for this story is a uh, clinician and researcher. And so he's had sessions with the students um, and is open to parents asking him questions about the vaccine that he's able to answer with authority and with certainty. So as much as parents are prone to, you know, sharing information amongst themselves, that can also be used for good because there are some medical professionals professionals whose kids go to alternative schools. And so that's proven to be a really good opportunity for parents to sort of learn and have their worries about the vaccine assuaged by people who are, um, you know, authoritative and have the ability to speak with certainty on the matter. I probably should have asked this earlier, but has the TDSB either to you or to anybody else addressed this discrepancy in alternative schools and vaccination? Um, so when I spoke to the TDSB for this story, um, they said that because they, you know, can't speak for certainty as to vaccine uptake among alternative school students, they aren't going to roll out any specific or targeted information sessions or, you know, uh, ways to share information until they know what that uptake is like. With regards to existing mandatory vaccines, there hasn't been any targeted outreach that I know of. Um, And in terms of the COVID vaccine, I believe that that is, you know, still something that they're deciding whether they'd like to do. And that's done in in association with Toronto Public Health. Um, And so I haven't heard of any targeted outreach as of yet. This is my last question. And you might have just answered it. But just to be clear, when you say they're talking with Toronto Public Health about whether or not to do it. Are you talking about adding the COVID vaccine to the list of mandatory school vaccines? 
Um, yeah, so that is something that uh, Toronto Public Health has wanted to do. They've requested to the province that this take place. The province is not uh, keen to do so at this time. And so I don't believe that that is something that Toronto Public Health is is putting like is putting a lot of um, investment into because they know it's going to be a, a significant uphill battle to, to get that agreed upon at a provincial level. Um, and so there has been an attempt to do that. There was also an attempt to get rid of um, non-medical exemptions even before the pandemic started. So this was in 2019. They petitioned the, the province saying that, you know, the the um, non-medical exemptions are getting a little out of hand in terms of the rate at which they're increasing. I think there was a, a doubling over the last decade or two. And so um, there was a sense that, you know, this is a problem that we're going to have to address. And then the pandemic happened. And both times the province uh, wasn't inclined to get rid of non-medical exemptions. And so for now, despite trying on public health's best efforts, um, the COVID vaccine likely won't become mandatory in schools and uh, non-medical exemptions for other vaccines won't be eliminated. Um, and so Toronto Public Health, I think, is focusing on ways to reach out to, to parents in specific schools um, to be able to, you know, convince them that the vaccine is is worth it and is, you know, a safe and, and healthy solution. Um, but that will depend on the uptake that we're seeing at these schools over the next you know, few months or year. It'll be a really interesting thing to watch. Anori, thank you so much for this. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Anori Roy, writing for The Local. That was The Big Story. For more from us, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca, find us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN, and talk to us anytime via email, thebigstorypodcast, that's all one word, at rci.rogers.com. You can also find this podcast in your favorite podcast player, Apple or Google or Stitcher or Spotify or Pocket Cast or Overcast or Good Pods or whatever you want. But when you do find it, make sure to leave a rating, leave a review, and as always, tell your friends. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.